A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, this is the time of year in New York that everybody hates if you live in Manhattan because all the streets are shut down. You can't go anywhere because leaders from all over the world have descended on the Big Apple as part of the annual gathering at the United Nations, known as the United Nations General Assembly, UNGA as they call it. And uh, it was a big week this week because we had really interesting speeches that came from both the Chinese President Xi Jinping and Joe Biden on the same day earlier this week. Uh, We're going to start with uh, Xi Jinping. He made a little bit of news. His speech, for the most part, was rather pro forma. We've heard most of the talking points before, but there was one interesting aspect of it, and we mentioned it earlier in the week in our newsletter, about his decision to curtail or cut back uh, the use of coal. And, And this is something we've been expecting, but let's listen to what President Xi had to say. China will step up support for other developing countries in developing green and low carbon energy and will not build new coal-fired power projects abroad. That, of course, was the voice of a translator, but that is a pretty big announcement because we've been expecting something like this for at least a year or so. Uh, Dating back to 2015, the Chinese in Latin America, for example, were spending upwards of $21.5 billion on energy projects, a lot of that coal. That cratered down to zero last year, and then in 2021, They have not spent $1 on coal projects. So the Chinese have been going this way. Uh, Kobus, you and I, we've been talking a lot about the Senghua power plant in Zimbabwe and how ICBC, the big bank, they pulled out of that. Uh, So here we have the Chinese on the record saying that they're going to end their use of coal. Very interesting point there. Joe Biden also gave a speech. His was a lot more encompassing, twice the length of Xi Jinping's speech. So Xi's, Xi's speech came in at about 15 minutes Uh, Joe Biden went for more than a half hour, typical for an American president who covered a lot more bases than most other leaders do. One of the themes was China. Even though the president did not mention the word China once in the speech, boy, it was kind of a thread that went all the way through. And democracy and authoritarianism was also one of the speech. Joe Biden really made it clear that this is a time when a lot of people perceive democracy to be on the ropes, But he said, don't bet against it. 
The future will belong to those who embrace human dignity, not trample it. The future will belong to those who unleash the potential of their people, not those who stifle it. The future will belong to those who give their people the ability to breathe free, not those who seek to suffocate their people with an iron hand. Authoritarianism, the authoritarianism of the world, may seek to proclaim the end of the age of democracy, but they're wrong. The truth is, the democratic world is everywhere. It lives in the anti-corruption activists, the human rights defenders, the journalists, the peace protesters. And while no democracy is perfect, including the United States, we'll continue to struggle to live up to the highest ideals to heal our divisions. And we face down violence and insurrection. Democracy remains the best tool we have to unleash our full human potential. So there's Joe Biden giving his full endorsement for democracy versus authoritarianism. Again, he didn't mention China by name, but it was a subtext of a lot of his speech. Uh, he also mentioned, incidentally, Cobus, uh, B3W. So we'll maybe talk about that today. That's the Build Back Better World Initiative as part of the answer to China's Belt and Road. Cobus, I guess the question I have to you as somebody sitting in South Africa who last year at this time was listening to a speech by Donald Trump, and prior to that, Trump took very aggressive tones at the UNGA speeches. What do you think when you see Joe Biden come back to the stage with a speech that is very typical of American presidents, but the United States and the world have changed a lot since Trump? Yeah, it was it was it was really interesting to hear. Um, you know, it's 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 you know, as as someone who lives in a democracy, I'm always you know, I'm I'm, I'm grateful that I live in a democracy, and I'm I'm you know, I'm always very grateful to to see support for 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 democracy internationally, particularly from the U.S. president. Um, at the same time, I think the, the speech also raised some questions um, in in my mind, um, particularly. You know the you know I, as I said I really I really admire all of the all of the support for democracy but I but I, I I would have been very I would have been grateful for more talk on um on a kind of an international democracy you know in, in, in what I mean is you know kind of how or how all of these countries are going to be working together to solve in transnational problems including for example COVID um, you know there was there was somewhat less you know kind of insight there about how how democracy might be extended and it seemed that he seemed very happy to 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 focus on a state level you know um, and what we've seen with COVID is that is that it's frequently the the kind of the the focus on the nation state level makes makes kind of you know higher level kind of problem solving more complicated frequently so you know so in that sense it's a bit of a mixed bag for me but but in general you know kind of the general vibe you know i would say is refreshing after after the trump era well joe biden's themes in his speech really echo a lot of the discussions that are going on in washington and in the run-up to the unga speeches this week uh, there was a very interesting article in Foreign Affairs magazine. Uh, is it a journal or is it a magazine? I always think of it as a magazine, but it might be a journal. Uh, How China Exports Authoritarianism, Beijing's Money and Technology is Fueling Repression Worldwide. It really brings up a lot of the key issues that are being talked about in Washington in terms of how to position the United States against China and China's efforts to influence other countries 
around the world using its own systems and its own tactics. It was written by Charles Zidell, who's a global fellow at the Wilson Center and a senior fellow at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Uh, he previously served on the U.S. Secretary of State's policy planning staff and is also the co-author of The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft, and World Order. Charles, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for uh, having us on today. And you were also joined by David Shulman, an old friend of the show, director of the China Global Hub at the Atlantic Council. He was a deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia on the National Intelligence Council from 2016 to 2018. And up until recently, a director at the International Republican Institute. David, a very good morning to you in Washington. Good morning to you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you both for getting up early and joining us on the show. This is a timely topic. We've been talking about a lot of the themes that you raised in your article over the past couple of years, but never put it together. Charles, let's start with you. You contend in the article that China is weakening the democracy political model and exporting its authoritarianism. Lay out your argument for us as you did in the piece. Absolutely. So what we wanted to do was try to take a synthetic comprehensive look at all the ways that China is fueling a global advance, a resurgence of authoritarianism while enervating and undercutting democracy worldwide. And Dave and I really uh, had the conversation before we started writing this piece that we were seeing an increasing drumbeat of articles arguing that there was either not an ideological component uh, to what China was doing or even if there was, it didn't matter because it wasn't having much of an effect. And combined with that, you hear, I'm a historian by training, uh, I'll admit that freely and proudly, you often hear that uh, the argument that the CCP, uh, China today, the PRC, is absolutely nothing like the Soviet Union, stop making the analogy, and then the argument gets a little screwy from there, in my opinion. Argument being that because they are nothing alike, and we know that the Soviet Union was trying to violently overthrow governments and trying to set up satellite states around the world, the argument becomes that either Beijing is not as organized as the Soviet Union was, or is not as dangerous. And so therefore, the United States needs to just calm down. And we thought that it might be useful to, instead of just analogizing without going through it, take a look at what Beijing is doing around the world. And so really the article uh, that we wrote was an attempt to look at how they are advancing the authoritarian model while undercutting uh, democracy and liberal values in several different arenas, in the developed world, in the developing world, and in multilateral institutions. And when you begin to look Synthetically, at all of these, it looks rather comprehensive. It looks like a very nuanced strategy because there's a different approach for different targets. And when you look at it like that, it looks not only comprehensive, but something that the United States and its allies really need to take very seriously to decide how to respond and push back against because the effects are very pernicious. So that is the full uh, extent of the uh, argument. Um, and we'll see, uh, we'll see where we go from here. 
So David, in the argument, you argue that that there is essentially three levels on which China China is weakening democracy internationally. I wonder if you could un- unpack those three levels, you know, kind of just, just as, as it's going to lead into the conversation. Sure. Um, so yes, as Charles said, uh, you have what we see happening in, in developed democracies, uh, in developing countries and across the global south, and then uh, at the international level and in international institutions. And so um, you know, in developed countries, uh, you see uh, China using carrots, uh, such as market access um, for governments and businesses uh, and academics, um, and also financial retaliation uh, for those who don't toe the line uh, on what uh, on the kind of messaging that China wants to be putting out there uh, in countries and for countries or, or, um, or groups such as the European Union. Uh, that slap sanctions uh, on on China. Um, so that's that's a big part of what's happening in, in developed countries. But you also have a real effort now we're seeing um, to expand what China does domestically in terms of silencing discourse and controlling ideas and, and these sorts of things uh, outside its borders. And we're seeing that very clearly now in developed countries, whether you look at the, the prime example being Australia, um, where China has tried to punish Australia for uh, Australians and Australia itself for speaking out on China's uh, activities. Uh, you see a real effort uh, to effectively control the parameters of thought and debate on China in these countries. And then at the same time, uh, and this you know extends to the developing world too, you have an effort to, to coerce uh, uh, the, the Chinese diaspora groups um, in countries like Australia, but also uh, across uh, much of the uh, developing world uh, to ensure that these groups, which are you know legitimately citizens of other countries, uh, these are these are oftentimes um, uh, ethnic Chinese people who've lived in these countries for for generations, uh, to try to interpose uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, between uh, these diaspora groups and their governments to try to uh, coerce or to try to pressure uh, or to try to uh, cajole them into advocating for China's uh, interests uh, and the Chinese Communist Party's. Um, China's um, strategic interests generally. Um, in the developing world, uh, what we see is, is something that's, that's a little bit different, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, you, number one, you see uh, at the kind of uh, overarching level, uh, China uh, advocating for its model of development uh, and adding for its, its path to, to becoming what you know, is now the, the world's second largest economy, which for understandable reasons can be attractive to a lot of the developing countries in which China is engaging more frequently. Uh, and at the same time, uh, both at the at fairly at the kind of public level, but especially in inter- in, in engagements, uh, you see China um, and Chinese officials talking about uh, the problems that democracies are having and and the supposed decline of democracies and inability to handle challenges such as COVID. So you see this type of model and kind of inspiration for countries across the developing world. But at the same time, you have uh, what I think is even more pernicious, which is these these engagements that China's having in these countries around the world that are not, as we say in the piece, necessarily intended to undermine a democracy in a country or to uh, transpose China's entire model uh, on a country, uh, you know, Soviet style perhaps. Um, but the practical effects of what China does in these countries ends up uh, undermining uh, democracy and bolstering illiberal actors. And so we can go through um, that uh, a little bit more in depth if you like, but it covers issues such as the opaque deals that are benefiting Chinese entities, but have the effect of bolstering uh, a small coterie of elites who are, if not beholden to China, um, certainly uh, over time start to put China's interests uh, and their own personal interests that can come from those engagements with China over those of their own citizens, uh, offering trainings and inspiration on control of civil society, China-style uh, cybersecurity laws, these types of things. 
and, and also co-opting the media and the civil society and academic space and helping uh, liberal actors to do that. So effectively a package of things that all together have this pernicious effect on democracies. And then uh, just briefly, the last kind of category would be at the inter- international level of what's happening in global governance institutions. Um, very clearly, China uh, by dint of the fact that it now has leadership in several uh, independent UN agencies, such as the International Telecommunications Union, um, through its role on the Human Rights Council, uh, its role on the uh, UN Economic and Social Council, the list could go on. China is uh, pushing its narrative uh, of, um, of uh, or its kind of approach to human rights, a much more particularist approach that, that, um, that uses the the, uh, the kind of mantle of sovereignty uh, to push back on any criticism, not just of China, but to shape the way we think about civil and political rights uh, in these countries, uh, in countries around the world. And at the same time, trying to push China's narrative about things like the Belt and Road Initiative and to shape the norms and standards uh, for emerging technologies uh, that are going to really shape the future. So um, I'll stop there, but that's kind of, in a nutshell, those three levels. Yeah, so that's that's a very good overview of, of what they're trying to do. It, and Charles, David just kind of went through the details of how, how China is trying to reshape the international order to more suit its interests. And I guess I, when I was reading the article, when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, well, the past four to 500 years of economic history tells us that the largest economy in the world gets to set the rules for everybody else. That's the way it was with the British when they ruled the empire. That was the way the United States got to do it. And now we're seeing China trying to reorient the international order to more align with its interests. Now, again, I'm not going to defend the Chinese here, but I'm just trying to better understand where you're coming from, because it kind of makes sense that the largest economy in the world does get to have the influence over the organizations. And after all, the United States... Well, that's how we came up into the system. We overthrew an existing order, reshaped the order in our because we were the largest and most powerful country. So in some ways, are you not arguing against economic history and just the reality of the way power works? So a couple of thoughts uh, on that. Uh, so first of all, I think there's a fun and long conversation to have about whether or not the United States overthrew the order or, in fact, inherited that and changed the order. But that's a separate conversation. Well, there was a colonial order that there was an imperial order ruled by European imperial countries and that for the most part, the United States came up with a very different uh, approach to governance than than the British and the European powers. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, I think we would uh, disagree maybe on whether or not overthrowing it, although we can clearly go back right to FDR pushing very hard on the British, pushing against Churchill to make sure that it was an anti-imperial system. But again, a separate conversation. Fair enough. So I I think the the larger point that we would make here uh, is not an argument against economic history, but an argument for what has led to stability, in some ways unprecedented stability over the past 70 years. And the United Nations, we were talking about UNGA at the beginning of this, predicated on respecting not only the sovereignty of multiple countries, but a liberal order. And so when these begin to be undercut, eroded, the United States and its allies are not, I don't think, pushing nor advocating a system Uh, that was the big boy set the rules and no one else gets a say. Uh, And in fact, what we're looking at here is a system that the largest powers don't get to dominate, but rather that is held up by others too. 
So simply saying that because China has more power, it gets to set the norm and rules and people have to accede to that flies in the face of not only the last 70 years of history, but in fact, until the last 10 years where China positioned itself in many ways about respecting the sovereign choices of different nations. So I wonder how you would draw the line between, you know, kind of an acknowledgement that China is now a very large economy, the, the world's world's second largest economy, and, and with that brings a certain amount of of norm setting, you know, and, and certainly countries countries like the UK or France, you, you know, kind of that, that have smaller economies than China find a certain amount of, of right to norm setting as their kind of natural birthright, you know, kind of that they, they, they very frequently kind of assert that. So how do you line the draw the line between China simply wanting to settle into this kind of norm-setting role that, that comes to the second largest economy and China actively undermining democracy in all of these at, at all of these different levels. Like, where, where does the line lie between those two things? I'll try to take that. I mean, I, I think, you know, what we're fundamentally talking about is, you know, this, this argument that while China has reached a certain level of importance and centrality in the global economy and, and in, in global governance, um, and thus, therefore, the international order should adjust and give China that that rightful place uh, at the table. Institutions should adjust to allow um, greater say for China, greater voting share, what have you. Um, and I think that, that that's not what anyone is or should be disputing. I think that that's, that's obvious and that that would be uh, ideal and China should have more of a voice. I think the, the, the question here and the problem comes down to the nature of the Chinese Communist Party in the sense that this is this is a party that wants to reshape the very nature of the international system and shape the, the fundamental norms that have guided it uh, for the past 75 plus years um, to better suit uh, the party's interests, not, not necessarily to better suit uh, the Chinese people's interests, right? This is a different sort of regime that we're talking about. And so when, you know, when we talk about, we're not saying that China wants to fundamentally scrap the system, but it is trying to, from the inside out, shape these norms and institutions uh, that better allow for uh, its authoritarian system to be viewed as, as legitimate. Uh, and, and there's a sense that uh, China is not going to be able to reach true great power or even, you know, uh, superpower status and become the you know the kind of top central uh, country in terms of global governance and 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 at the center of the global economy until there's a basic acceptance of the fact that its system uh, and systems like it are just as legitimate uh, as democratic ones and so I think that's the fundamental question where we're, we should be grappling with and you know personally I, I feel like uh, and uh, kind of as Charles was touching on. There's been a, a understanding across the, the international system over many decades now uh, that, that these kind of principles of, of uh, universal human rights uh, and, and democratic liberal principles and individual human rights are, are at the center for what, uh, of what we as, as humanity want to kind of move towards over time. Uh, and, and if China has its say, those things will be, will be undermined. And I don't think, I think the last thing I'll say is, you know, you look at um, polls and you and you engage with with, with citizens uh, and there is still among almost every country around the world at least in terms of the surveys that I've seen a a desire for democracy and a desire for freedom of speech and individual rights um, and so uh, that's not something that's uh, you know imposed by uh, the the United States or by liberal uh, developed democracies and is now something that that people are clamoring to see change there is a you know what what you have is is those in power. Uh, believe that it benefits them to to reduce those things, and they're trying to trying to sell the notion that 
um, that authoritarians can deliver development and security and stability without democracy, and China's helping them to make that case. Um, but there's still a real desire for democracy and for individual rights around the world. So I think that this is more of a case of China and the Chinese Communist Party trying to impose its vision and, and other elites and leaders around the world who benefit from that vision and like to maintain control without the annoyances of a, of a democracy, democratic populace uh, calling for calling for change or keeping pressure on them, uh, those are the ones who who want uh, these changes to the international order, not not the citizens uh, who inhabit it. I guess Charles, let me pick up that point. There is it really that binary that it's either democracy or authoritarianism? Because what we see in many African countries and also certainly in Latin America as well is that countries are looking at these governance models almost like a buffet, where they they do as David point out, they many people do like the ability to have freedom of speech, association, religion, and whatnot. But at the same time, they also like some of the stability that authoritarianism does bring. They don't like sometimes the chaos that democracy brings. Also bear in mind that in many parts of the Middle East, Egypt had an election that then turned into an authoritarian dictatorship. Same Hamas. We pushed Hamas into elections very quickly. Look what happened. And so people will see over and over again that democracy has not lived up to the hype and the potential, and that the authoritarians in places like China, for example, are at least delivering economic growth, stability, even if it comes at the expense of civil and, and political rights. That may be a trade-off that people in some countries are willing to make. Talk to us about the balance between democracy and authoritarianism as you see it in this discussion with the Chinese? And is it really as binary uh, as a lot of people in Washington make it out to be? So obviously, democratic governance encompasses a range of different practices. The same is true for authoritarianism. The larger argument uh, here is that large practices of democratic governance, if we're talking about a free and flourishing civil society, if we're talking about a free press, if we're talking about opposition government, uh, contending visions within a society for uh, how their uh, country could be ruled. Uh, these are important, and those are core elements to democracy writ large. Even if you can have variation on how they're played out, you know, in the United States, the Australia, the some d uh, democracies in Africa, the Middle East, etc., and so I, I think the challenge that we're seeing here is, yes, of course, this is not all democracies get lumped into category A, all authoritarians get lumped into category B, but there are certain core elements that when they are undermined, undercut the ability of a government to be responsive to its own citizens in, the law, in a way that many citizens around the world, many people around the world consistently say they want. Uh, Dave was alluding to several of those polls before. So what we're looking at here is really the fact that these core elements of civil society, a free press, free speech, the ability to speak out and not be critiqued, freedom of religion, seem to be getting undercut by local actors that are often fueled and empowered by tools and techniques that are coming out of Beijing. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that specific point? Like, which which specific kind of tools, tools and elements are you thinking of? Like, in, in the article you mentioned, for example, surveillance technology. Uh, but of course, we're you know kind of we're we're only what a month or two you know after after the the, the initial revelation of the Pegasus project, where Israeli made uh, surveillance technology was used quite broadly, also in Africa, to 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 crack down on on, on um, civil society and, and opposition politicians. Um, and we've seen similar reporting of Western technology being used side by side with Chinese technology in in rep- in this kind of repression going back to to the, the early 2010s. So, in, so in which sense is is the the kind of these kind of tools that are being exported from from China unique to what is also coming out of many Western countries and being used in very similar ways? Yeah, Kobus, I think that's a very good point, and it's one that um, you know is frequently made. While the United States uh, and and Israel and and others uh, export uh, this surveillance technology, and I think it's something that certainly. Uh, needs to be looked at much more closely in terms of what democracies are doing um, to to supply these to, these tools around the world. I think when you look at what China's doing and where their technology is going and how it combines with the other elements uh, of of these things that are undermining uh, democracy that we point out in in the piece, that's where you start to you know that's where it's it's understood as part of a whole of what's what's undermining democracy in a lot of these countries in a place where. Um, you know, pick a pick a country. You can say uh, Serbia. You have um, China uh, supporting uh, a, a an increasingly illiberal government uh, under President Alexander Vucic. Um, you have China supplying, um, you know, providing these these engaging in deals that that help Vucic uh, to to stay in power, to point to his uh, success, uh, and to help him politically. Think investments in Serbia and elsewhere that are you know actually timed um, uh, sometimes, uh, and also regionally directed in order to achieve maximum uh, political effect and help a, a political ally. Um, you have that kind of thing going on at the same time as you have China then providing a country like Serbia with uh, a safe cities project through Huawei that's going to have a thousand cameras around uh, a country, uh, or it's actually just in Belgrade, uh, in a situation where Vucic was already cracking down on the media uh, significantly and you had protests, um, major protests over the last year or so, this is going to facilitate his ability uh, to control civil society and to suppress the media better. So that's just one example. But you have that kind of thing happening in multiple, in many countries around the world now. And so um, it's important to, to point out, as you do, that, that China is not the only one exporting this surveillance technology, but understood in the totality of what China is doing and how it's engaging with um, with countries that are, um, from my perspective, heading in the wrong direction in terms of governance and rights um, uh, that's where I think it's clearest that this is having a real negative effect. Yeah, one area that we've been following quite closely is the cyber governance model, and this is something that is very relevant in Africa. A couple examples here. So Senegal this year became the first country in Africa to model their their national data policy on the Chinese model. So Huawei, with a China Exim Bank loan, built a, a data center that now forces all data to be run through that data center in order to be legal in Senegal. Also, uh, the blockage of Twitter in Nigeria was also inspired in part by uh, by what China's doing. And now we're seeing in Ethiopia, they are working with Chinese authorities to create parallel apps to social media apps that are common in the US. So Facebook, Zoom, Instagram, and WhatsApp. They've mentioned openly that China's been able to do that. And so the cyber governance model is very interesting. The way that a lot of these African countries and developing countries are coming about this, and you point to this in the article, is through trainings. And to that, 
if anybody's interested, I highly recommend the book by Professor Lena Ben-Abdalet, Wake Forest University, Shaping the Future of Power. She talks about the training programs in the military, journalism, academic, and party-to-party ties. Just to give you a flavor of what the party-to-party ties looks like in the trainings, let me just play a soundbite here. And Charles, I'd like to get your take on this. This is from a 2018 report from CGTN Africa from Kenya about how Kenya's ruling Jubilee Party is working with the Chinese Communist Party on party state governance issues. And what you're going to hear in here is how they are also being inspired by the ANC in South Africa. And that is another area where China's been very influential. And the ANC, like the Jubilee, really like the idea of the party being above the government, much as it is in China. Let's take a listen to this CGTN report from 2018. To Kenya now, where a Chinese delegation from the International Department of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party were the guests of honor at a training course for Kenya's ruling Jubilee Party. The Chinese delegation briefed Jubilee Party members on how their structures in the Chinese Communist Party functions and what role they play in decision-making on party matters and public policy. Kenya's governing party has been studying several political party models in various countries, including the African National Congress of South Africa. With a view of strengthening its roots and longevity, the party is considering establishing its own political academy. So that there was an example of two of the issues that you raised. Both is the the party-to-party relationship that the CGTN reporter was talking about, but also the fact that it was CGTN itself broadcasting this news, which is conveying this this idea. So Charles, talk to us a little bit about the, the trainings that you've followed in your own research and whether or not they're effective in, in terms of persuading countries like Kenya to, to follow China's more authoritarian approach. You know, Eric, that's a fascinating clip uh, that you just played. And I really keyed in uh, amongst all the very interesting uh, nuggets in there uh, on the word uh, of longevity, right? That the the interest is in promoting uh, the Jubilee Party's longevity. It's roots and longevity is what I heard there. So, uh, you know, look, it's not surprising that a ruling party would want to shore up its base and make sure that it stays in power. But the challenge here, I think, and what we heard there, what you're seeing manifestations of, is that when you have a democracy that begins to move from trying to perpetuate itself into power to trying to change the terms of the conversation by labeling its opposition as illegitimate, by labeling civil society as if it moved in a different direction than the party, as undercutting the national goal, this begins to sound like we're talking about democracy, uh, not as a legitimate form or expression of individual interest, but simply sabotage or unpatriotic or treasonous. And that becomes quite dangerous. And you're beginning to see this. The Kenya model is quite uh, illustrative here because we're beginning to see this as encouraging not political participation, but rather a ruling party's vision of making sure that any opposition is both illegitimate and framed as state subversion. That is the problem here. But I'm sorry, if I could just interrupt you, everything that you've said is exactly what the Republican Party has said about their opponents. I mean, that is literally to a T. And I'm just, and I'm just, I guess I'm wondering is that if the United States can't practice that, remember, a third of our compatriots do not believe that the president is a duly elected president. And my point here is not to get sucked into red-blue politics in the U.S., but again, if we ourselves are struggling with this, 
which we are, how are we going to possibly then confront a, a China or build a united front or coalition of countries because we may lack the credibility to do that given the, the difficulties we're facing at home? Oh, well, look, I mean, just very quickly on this, I'd love for Dave to offer his thoughts too. I think it's precisely because we are struggling with this that we can talk about it publicly, right? We have a problem here when we begin to talk about political opposition as unpatriotic or treasonous. And when we try to perpetuate one party in power, that is the reason why there have been such ongoing strong reactions to the coup attempt in the United States on January 6th. We're not going to pretend that didn't happen. We're not going to pretend that those sentiments don't still exist. But this is the very reason why you have a party in power talking about just how destabilizing this was, the United States holding up its own imperfections, as President Biden addressed in that clip that you played at the beginning, as the reason why we have to push forward on this, because this cannot be the model that takes hold either in the United States or in other nations. Just to add to that, I mean, I think that that's, that's the really important point is that the, the, the United States is not, or at the very, you know, should not be going around the world and saying, look at how perfect our democracy is, uh, and don't you want to be more like us? That, that's never been, in my experience, and having worked at the International Republican Institute, a democracy promotion, good governance organization, that's never been the message, right? And, and in these engagements um, that groups like IRI and NDI and, the, and others have around the world, um, the conversation is never about how can you be more like the United States or some other developed democracy. The conversation is about, as Charlie, Charles was saying, you know, what are the challenges that democracies face? Uh, what are the risks uh, that, that illiberal trends pose um, for the future? And, you know, what, what lessons are learned across countries, right? I mean, I, even just in the last couple months, I've had engagements uh, in person in, in Serbia and in, and in Mexico. And, and, and these conversations are about, um, you know, how do we work together uh, and how do we learn from each other to bolster independent media uh, and investigative journalism, to bolster civil society, and to ensure, yes, in the context of, of China or other authoritarians, uh, that when a country engages uh, with, um, with entities that are linked to the Chinese party state, there are not these really negative uh, implications that, that flow for that for their democracy. Um, but it's not a conversation about, uh, you know, choose the United States over China because our democracy is perfect and, and, and everyone, you know, and, and our uh, elections are, are running smoothly, which everyone can, can see over the last year is not the case. Uh, it's more a conversation about, you know, democracy is um, not, not always perfect, but it's, um, I think, most, uh, most agree the best possible form of governance uh, out there to achieve the aspirations of humanity, um, to be a little bit grand about it. And so how do we um, continue to work on this uh, in each individual context, right? With the understanding, again, each country is different and faces different challenges. Um, you know, how can we learn from each other and how can we support each other uh, to, to improve our, our democracy and have good governance and transparency and all the rest? Charles, in, in, in the, the section of the article where, where you discuss um, China's influence on developing countries, you say that in many countries China has kind of captured a small, a small elite um, and is essentially work, just simply working with them to, you know, to entrench their position. 
I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit, just just in the context that you know, in, in you know, obviously we focus we focus on Africa, and in many African countries, um, I think the the engagement with 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 China, particularly the the development engagement, has been actually quite a lot a lot more comprehensive than that. And you know, there's study after study that has shown you know that the very real kind of developmental impact, trade impacts, and so on, um, you know, for for with engagement with China, even though many of these of these problems and elite capture certainly one of them is you know is is in the mix so i was wondering like do you foresee any legitimate way for these for these countries to work with both western democracies and with china or is the very fact that they're working with china already kind of like devaluing their own you know their their, their own position or their own standing as democracies or or their kind of like oh, the, the 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 potential for cooperation with other partners yeah thanks kobus i think that's a really uh, good and important question let me just offer some overview comments and then actually punt to Dave, because I have a feeling that as someone who follows the developing world, particularly the global South so closely, uh, that this is, I want to, I want to leave this to him also because he was the lead drafter on that section. But let me uh, start with uh, what I see as the most important kind of top line answer to your question from my perspective, which is, is there any way for these developing countries, or particularly those that are democratically inclined, or at least nominally, or in some hybrid fashion, as we were discussing earlier, to engage with both the West, as you said, and China? And I think the answer is, of course, yes, absolutely, comma, but it matters how. Uh, and it depends for what ends and what objectives. Uh, and let me go a little bit further and say that as long as a country is going about its dealings in a transparent way so that its citizens understand that it is not pilfering uh, national resources uh, to make sure that the decisions that are being undertaken uh, are explained uh, to them, to make sure that the acts that are being undertaken, the positions that are being uh, uh, taken by the government are not done on a corrupt basis, but rather because, this is what the government says, absolutely, but transparency is really important here, I think, when governments engage. I would just add, you know, I completely agree, Kobus, it's it's broad-based. I think the point that we're making is that in many countries, as you said, there is a certain level of, of elite capture going on where you have through, yes, corruption, but also generally just through the draw of um, Chinese investment and, and to some for some, and we've seen examples of this market access for, for companies, there's there becomes a, an inherent uh, tie between a lot of elites and leaders in countries to China and, and a um, either spoken or unspoken uh, commitment uh, to put China's interests ahead of uh, ahead of their interests of their own citizens, and so um, that that's what we talk about when we're talking about um, elite capture and this coterie of elites. But I think, um, as Charles was getting at, this is also you know much broader as we've discussed. I mean, it's you need to look at the impact that that China's engagement and investment is happening uh, is, is having across a country. Uh, yes, we you know I certainly would acknowledge in some. In some ways, in many countries, having uh, some positive effects in terms of uh, building infrastructure that's needed, um, but also having a, an effect in undermining manufacturing bases in some places. Um, and and at the same time, 
um, you know, and, and you've covered this really well in the, in the newsletter, what's happening in the information space, right? And, and we talked a little bit about CGTN and China's propaganda push, but I think um, you've covered nicely in the newsletter how we also have these content exchanges. We have all these other things that are happening in terms of media investment to shape the information space such that um, there isn't a true understanding of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party in these countries, of China's actions domestically or within that country itself, um, because uh, China shapes it. And then, of course, the powers that be in these countries uh, shape shape the information space themselves in many cases, right? So China's pushing on an open door. So if you have that sort of a, an actual open information space, if you have a true debate about how to engage China in a country, and you have uh, elites who are not beholden to China, and you have a, an actual regulatory environment, a legal environment uh, that protects a country from the negative effects that can come uh, from engaging with China, then 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 absolutely. I mean, countries are going to, number one, countries are going to continue to engage with China. Uh, I think the goal is to make it such that they can do so sustainably and in a way that protects, um, you know, democracy and transparency uh, and all the rest so that, uh, and prosperity and independence. Um, and those, but those pieces need to be in place. Uh, and in a lot of places, they just aren't. I'd like to close to get both of you your recommendations. Uh, towards the end of the article, you talked about what needs to be done. You said the United States and its allies should also work to offer democratic alternatives. I think when you go to developing countries, you will hear that they want the United States to be engaged. They want the United States to come up with an offer, but nobody's picking up the phone. Let's take Africa, for example. Anthony Blinken has not been to Africa once. Yang Jiechi has been once and Wang Yi has been twice to the continent this year. They're just not showing up. One of the things we do and we track in the newsletter every day is every call that Xi Jinping makes. It's incredible, this guy's call list. He was just talking to the president of, of Malawi. He talks to the prime minister of Dominica. He talks to these tiny little countries. And they're doing that engagement. The other thing that people are complaining about in, in the global south is that when the United States shows up to say, don't use Huawei or we've got B3W or don't do you know, a BRI program, and people will turn around and say, okay, what do you got? Where's your credit line? Where's your money? Where's your infrastructure? Where are your companies? They're not showing up. So how do we mobilize a legitimate, meaningful alternative when it seems very difficult to actually get stakeholders to align in places like Africa, which are tough and difficult and complex and way out of the comfort zone for a lot of Americans. Charles, let's go to you in terms of recommendations, and then David will close it out with you. Yeah, a, a couple of big thoughts here. And first of all, I wish you, I had you on speed dial uh, when I had the opportunity of working uh, in the State Department because I was constantly bombarding the poor folks on the China desk with asking them if they had a tracker about the number of countries visited and which delegations were going. Uh, and they said, well, yes, uh, sometimes, but you are bombarding us with this. Why? And I said, because I want to hold it up against ours. This is an important point. So I think it's really important to uh, track that because people do pay attention, as you said. Look, I, I think in many ways, the answer here boils down to something that we don't want to say uh, out loud because all of us uh, in the United States are, of course, budget conscious. But part of this is we just got to spend more. Uh, there are projects that we need to help fund. Now, of course, uh, you know, the evolution of this has been, we're not going to compete for every infrastructure project. Yes, of course we're not. And we have a private sector and 
FDI that can help accelerate that, but strikes me as in two particular areas. On infrastructure, you are seeing movement towards that. I expect to see further movement, frankly, over the weekend when you have the quadrilateral meeting uh, between the leaders of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. I also think that we're beginning to see movement in the tech sector, uh, particularly as we begin to talk about movement into the 6G networks, about underwriting this uh, from some democratic nations. But I think the answer becomes in some ways that you cannot do this without putting your money where your mouth is, right? Which is making sure that the resources are aligned with our objectives here. And, you know, the the budget is being wrangled over as we speak uh, right now. But without that, it's more rhetorical than it is actual policy. David, closing thoughts to you. Yeah, I would just, I mean, uh, Charlie, uh, Charles covered it really well uh, in terms of uh, what we should be offering in terms of alternatives. I think, um, you know, obvious this is, you know, you're preaching to the choir when we talk about the attention that needs to be given um, on the part of the United States to the global south and the fact that that China, you know, everyone talks about China's very good with its public messaging and all these, you know, visits and, and investments uh, come with uh, grand, you know, uh, events, and and they get a lot of attention uh, in the countries in which they ha- they happen. Whereas the United States often, uh, kind of what it's doing uh, does not go um, uh, goes uh, un- unknown in in places because we're not quite as good at the at the uh, at the public diplomacy or public messaging bit. But I think just basic trips and attention uh, is critical uh, across Africa, Latin America as well. Uh, this is important. Um, but I, in terms of recommendations, uh, in ter- beyond you know paying more attention. Um, and where we should spend money, as Charles put it, you know, I, I think of this as side, two sides of one coin, right? You have to have the alternatives, uh, as as he laid out very nicely, and as you said, Eric, uh, you also need to be uh, spending money on actually bolstering the resilience uh, of the democracies across the global south to the negatives that can come from engaging with China. And I, yes, I say this as someone who used to work at the International Republican Institute, so I'm, I may be a bit biased, but you know, the the, the work to bolster. Um, good governance to bolster transparency, to support uh, democratic activists, to support uh, independent journalism, to support civil society, and to support just democratic processes like elections, right, which have kicked out many of the um, kind of Chinese clients uh, that that have uh, that they've cultivated in countries just through just through elections working in, in some cases, which is a good news story, right? So these kinds of things are not they used to be thought of as nice to haves uh, in terms of you know U.S. foreign aid, uh, but it's really central to uh, dealing with uh, the rise of authoritarianism that has been uh, supported and pushed uh, by China and other and other authoritarian states. So so that in addition to offering the alternatives to these countries and not just saying China's bad, don't deal with them. Um, I think those those two elements are really essential to, to having a big impact in this space. The article is How China Exports Authoritarianism, Beijing's Money and Technology is Fueling Repression Worldwide, written by Charles Edel, a global fellow at the Wilson Center and a senior fellow at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Also, David Shulman, new director at the China Global Hub at the Atlantic Council. Charles, David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us to talk about your article in Foreign Affairs. We really appreciate it. Both of you are on Twitter. Charles, can you tell us where people can find you so they can see what you're reading and writing? Sure. If they must go into the Twitterverse, I believe uh, it's just my name, at Charles Edel, E-D-E-L. Wonderful. And David, how about you? Yes, same. Uh, Mine's uh, Dave, D-A. A-V-E, Shulman, S-H-U-L-L-M-A-N, at Twitter. And as always, I will put links to both of their Twitter handles in the show notes and a link to the article as well. Charles, David, thank you again. Thanks, both of you. Thanks very much. It's been fun. 
Kobus, it was a real thrill to have the chance to speak with David and Charles. I've admired their work for quite some time. I did enjoy the article. Uh, I don't agree with everything they wrote, but I guess my biggest question that I have, and it's one point that I've never really been able to get a good answer out of proponents of the argument, is the American offer or the democracy offer that's on the table. It's the issue we talked about towards the end of our discussion. And, and, and this is the problem that I'm facing with this because at the end of the day, the breadth of what the Chinese are doing is so much wider than the discourse in Washington affords. So in Washington, they'll talk about Huawei or they'll talk about infrastructure. They'll talk about one or two aspects of it. And one of the things that I noticed just putting together the newsletter every day and all the content that we're doing on the site is how depressing it must be for that team at the State Department who's tasked with tracking China and reporting up the food chain as to, okay, here's what the Chinese are doing today. Here's what they're doing. Because my list of what I'm tracking every day is so long that I don't have enough room in the newsletter to put it all in because if I put it all in, I'll have a newsletter that's just way too long. So I I find myself cutting stuff out all the time just to make it digestible every day. And that's part of this is that I don't get the sense that the discourse in Washington truly understands the appeal in many respects of what the Chinese are doing in tech, in economic engagement, in trade, in all these different areas. And again, part of it is because the U.S. and Europeans and the Japanese, in many respects, are just not showing up with the same arsenal. So whatever it is, there's a lot more appeal to the Chinese offer than I think the U.S. offer or the European offer, just by virtue of the fact that the Chinese are showing up. That's true. I I completely agree with you. And because they show up on so many fronts, their developmental impact in in the global south is significant and it's i think the i think the the kind of discourse in the us at the moment about china's china's kind of expansion into the global south i think to my mind, kind of doesn't hundred percent take into account the real challenge that China presents to the U.S. and 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 the, the Biden administration's line between author, autocracies and and democracies makes that a little harder to understand. I think there's there's a there's a really fundamental kind of philosophical difference between Western ideas of what development looks like and what democracy and all of these what a good life looks like, and what is being offered by China. And I think the 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 challenge. Offered, challenged by offered, offered by China isn't simply that they're capturing elites and then bribing them and then you know um, it's it's that what they offer is in some ways fundamentally not being offered by by Western counterparts, um, particularly a kind of a that 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 the old thing that that we always talk about about how how you know kind of access to water for example in the Chinese kind of space and actually in the African space in many African spaces is seen as a, as a, as a human rights response, right? Kind of giving a community access to clean water is a human rights victory. Um, whereas in, you know, in, 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 in Western perspective, it's a logistics victory, you know? Um, and, and it comes from a background where those those logistics have been achieved within within wealthy countries so long ago that it doesn't, that that expanding it doesn't really count more as as a, a new human rights victory, whereas in African countries it is a significant human rights victory, and that is a, a an, an overlap between them and the Chinese experience that means that those that those societies 
and those governments are just on the same page in a way that they're not on the same page with with rich Western democracies. Um, you know, so so it's it's not necessarily that those countries are just all captured by China and all authoritarian. They just see the experience of development differently than than and than many kind of Western commentators have the kind of bandwidth to appreciate because it's so far away from Western daily experience. Well, that being said, and I think this is an important point to bring up, is that even though everything that you've laid out, I don't disagree with, and this is the problem with you and I, we agree on too much and it makes it boring for people, but okay, that's just the way it is. We need to find points that we disagree with more on one another, with one another. <laughs> but so the Afrobarometer data, which is by all intents and purposes, the most credible, reliable polling data in Africa shows the durability of the American promise, that even though the Americans, for the most part, are not showing up in Africa, they're not engaging, their trade volumes are falling, there's really, they're not doing that much, yet the Afrobarometer data shows quite a bit of popularity for the American model. That being said, I, I just, I'm not convinced. Actually, let me rephrase that. It's more that I'm not convinced. I really don't think that the alternative to the Chinese those forces are up to the challenge. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. So, I mean, and that's not, that's not to endorse the authoritarianism of what the Chinese are doing. That's just to say the answer isn't there. And if I hear one more time, you, you, you know, a, a, a Joe Biden or the EU commission president talk about crappy Chinese infrastructure in Africa and how their values-led infrastructure initiative is going to be the alternative led by the private sector without any details, any launch program, any money assigned to it, any teams that are put there. Here's the point person, nothing but broad platitudes. They're not up for the challenge. They're not serious about this unless, as David said, you got to put cash behind it. Cash is what gets these things moving because there's people, there's names, there's programs, there's deliverables, and get going. And I just don't see any of that beyond rhetoric right now. You know, I, I think there might even be more fundamental problems than that because the, the what we've seen, for example, through the experience of, of, the, of the COVID pandemic, right, is that COVID ended up strengthening nation states right kind of they they you know before covid like there was there was there was this kind of idea that that nation states uh, are diminishing in influence and that transnational entities are going are going to be really important right covid canceled that right kind of like everything went down back to to central governments and what we saw from central governments in the rich global north you know which is the the homeland of of, of these kind of rich democracies is that they they, they kind of like turned inward, they strengthened their borders, they hardened all of their kind of domestic, you know, kind of engagement and to, at, at the price of international engagement. Um, and, you know, and, and that isn't just a, just an issue at, of COVID. It's, it's in, you know, you, you see it, for example, showing up in climate issues as well. So, for example... You know, like if you look, if you look at the, the the record of someone like like Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator in, in West in West Virginia, um, the you know kind of he is keenly listening to local concerns, right? Kind of he's really in tune with with kind of local electorate, um, and that local electorate wants coal, right? Kind of so they they're pushing for coal. West Virginia is a coal is a coal state, so, and and he's responding to that, but. So you know, so so that that happened through a completely legitimate, like democratic process, like you know, s celebrated the world over. That still screws Africa, <laughs> you know. That decision is a small in-country 
in-group decision. And these, these democracies have not shown themselves really able to surpass that level and to actually like work on behalf of the global good. In fact, what we're seeing is that 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 kind of like any kind of globalism ends up being kind of undercut by local democracy. So we, we you know, kind of the, 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 to simply then kind of assert that, oh, democracy is best for the world, will always be best for the world without asking what kind of democracy, how is it going to work? Like how, how, you know, who are the stakeholders? Is it really only citizens? You know, those kind of questions end up being kind of erased in this kind of very hard line democracy autocracy line. And, and we're not seeing any real, any real kind of problem solving. You know, kind of, I want these democracies to prove me wrong. I want them to step up, lead the world, like take, you know, take us into a new era, you know, like global goods for all, you know, kind of solve climate, climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not doing it. They're not doing it. And again, I, I fully respect David's point of view on this, and I have a lot of respect for him, but I'm going to respectfully disagree with, with one point because I think, again, he comes back to the idea that democracy is again he's not putting the united states up as the as the end all be all but then again we in the united states we say may god bless america we think we're you know the house on the hill i mean it's a very much a part of who we are as a people that we are the greatest country in the world so while maybe the foreign policy analysts in certain parts of washington are more nuanced about it the culture as a whole really does believe that we are truly the greatest country in the world so that that, that arrogance is definitely a part of it. I will admit, I have been outside of the United States now going on oh, 13, 14 years, mostly in developing countries in Congo, China, Vietnam. So my perspective is a little different here. And so this binary approach, democracy, autocracy, again, he wasn't necessarily saying that that's the only option. But I think if you'll find that if you ask people in many global South countries what they want, and I did this over lunch one day with my former Vietnamese staff, and I had about 20 young people, and I've said this story before on the show, so we're like old married couples where we're repeating stories over and over again. But I, so if, if you've heard this before, forgive me, but for a lot of people who haven't heard it, I think it's really interesting. I asked my staff at lunch, I said, and this is in Vietnam, a communist authoritarian country. I said, do you want to be like America? If you could have any government that you'd want, what would you like? Would you like to be like France? like the United States, I kind of assumed, and this is maybe my own bias and arrogance, that they said they wanted to be like the U.S. because they wanted to study in America, but they don't necessarily want to live in America. So anyway, so they came back to me and they said, all of them, all 20 at lunch said, nope, that that kind of democracy was not for them. Do you remember what country it was that they said that they wanted to be like when I told you the story the last time? No, actually, I don't. Okay, take a guess. There was universally, take a guess, what do you think these, these are 25, 26-year-old, young professional, educated, upwardly mobile young people. What country do you think that they said that they wanted to have their country, Vietnam, emulate? Mm, uh, maybe Sweden. Nope. Yeah, who was it? They said Singapore. Uh. And that makes a lot of sense. Here's the reason why. Singapore is a, is a country which... I can't call Singapore a democracy. It's basically a family business, but they have a deal. And the deal is we're going to give you great schools, great infrastructure, programs that work, sewage that works, everything works. But in exchange, you're not going to get the same civil and political rights. That's the trade-off in Singapore. 
Every single one of these young people was perfectly happy with that trade-off. What they wanted was services and systems and, and bureaucracy and no corruption, clean government. Sweden, in many respects, is the same way. So you're right. It, Sweden and Singapore in that respect. Sweden's more democratic than Singapore is. But democracy wasn't the thing that people wanted. Services and lack of corruption and things just working was the priority. And I don't think that concept is very well understood in Paris, Brussels, London, and Washington. Yes, I, you know, kind of, I, I think I, I agree with you, and, and and I think there there is a there is a, a kind of a really such a kind of a almost. I don't want to. I don't want to use the use the word fundamentalist because that, that's such a negative word. But like such a such a kind of like really like a, a belief to the core in in democracy as as almost. A, Again, I sound I sound derogatory or I sound dismissive, but like almost almost as a magic potion, right? Kind of like almost as a cure all for you know, kind of like as long as there's democracy, then you know. But but what what I think what what many people who who have experience of living in the global south will say, like yeah, there's there's a lot of these countries have regular elections, but. Everything else, all of the access to public goods in in you know kind of in in that country has to do with with access to power, right? Um, and and the 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 kind of the the experience of that kind of lack of access to power doesn't necessarily so cleanly translate into well, we just vote these people out, right? Um, and so 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 the kind of regular ritual of, of elections can happen in a in a in a in a place where where otherwise people are structurally excluded from from power, like have no access to resources, and that I think is is also true for the for the U.S. and other like big democracies. You know, kind of it's like a, a lot of people in, in in those countries also find themselves structurally excluded from you know kind of from from power due to poverty due to race due to immigration status due to sexuality or gender identity there's lots of reasons um you know so 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 that kind of i i feel that there's a there's a kind of a disconnect in this conversation um that that you know kind of makes me anxious you know kind of because because i feel that there, there's something about about the experience of being in the global south that's, that's really missed by 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 a lot of commentators in the global north yeah. Well, we're going to have a counter view on this, a different perspective. Uh, we've just booked a time with Professor Tang Xiaoyang from Tsinghua University, who's one of the leading China-Africa scholars in Beijing at Tsinghua. And again, it's one of the things we try and do on the show is to bring the widest array of opinions. So we had Wu Peng, the director general from the foreign ministry on. We've got folks like David Shulman and Charles Adele on as well. And again, that's a spectrum that is very, very wide in order to bring you the complexity uh, of this story. And again, one of the things you keep hearing from Cobus and, and myself is the fact that it, it can't be binary. So if you feel that you know, China's engagement in a place like Africa is all good or all bad, you are missing big parts of the story. Because in our view, it's a complicated, jumbled mess of both. And so let's just leave the conversation there. This is one of those topics as again, as a, we could have a couple bottles of wine and a dinner party and we'd go right, right through the night talking about it. It's, uh, this is one of those fun conversations. But this is what we talk about every single day in, in, on the website, in the newsletter. We've got thousands of articles archived on it. 
again, also, if you subscribe to the China Africa Project, you get access to our transcripts of our podcasts. We're going to be launching very soon a new Patreon community as well. We're going to do some cool, fun things there about building community. So we've got some really neat things that are in the pipeline. We'd love for you to be a part of our community. Just head over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at $75 a year for students and teachers and $149 a year for everybody else. You can try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. If you don't like it, cancel anytime. Let us know. Of course, you can reach out to Cobus and myself directly. I'm at eric at chinaafricaproject.com and Cobus is at Cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus Knight will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Eric Olander for Cobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg. Thank you so much for listening. continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.